Welcome to Southbank Centre Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Senior Programmer for Literature and Spoken Word. Our literature season this year features many era-defining writers, from John le Carré to Zadie Smith. We hope you enjoy this episode. I am Hepzibah Anderson, and it's my intense pleasure to be able to welcome to the Royal Festival Hall this evening one of our culture's most creative, questing, downright life-enhancing icons, Dame Vivian Westwood. Somebody's taken my notes. Could I have them? (laughs) I'm going to start, and hopefully she'll be here with them in a moment, by reading out the press release. Aristotle said, the acorn is happy to become an oak. He didn't quite say it. I put it together from what he did say. He was obsessed by the fact that form is always becoming something else, and therefore he defines happiness as happiness, fulfilling your potential, like the acorn. Your character is your bag of tools. You use it to discover the world. You'll always behave in character. And the secret is that by following your deep interest, you will forget yourself and get a life. You will become who you are, like the acorn. And you'll get out what you put in now and for the future, because you know I'm an activist, and so we've got to try to save the planet for future generations. We face mass extinction. Because if you draw a line level with Paris, below that, it's uninhabitable. Just one billion people left by the end of this century. We're not told about it. We've got non-stop distraction all the time. And people who run the world, the 1%, are very keen to keep on wrecking the world without thought that they're also wrecking their own lives. I want to say first that my aim is to give you a perspective Because with that perspective, every book you read, the paintings you look at, everything you do will have more relevance with this big cover I'm giving you of a perspective. And only I could give you that perspective. There's nobody else in the world could give it to you. And I can give it to you because it comes from the books I've been reading. And I've been reading these books all my life. And so the two really great books that I've based this perspective on, one is the Book of Anthropology by Lord Raglan. It was published in the 50s. The other one is the book I've just started reading. This man, David Hinton, it's amazing that anybody could be on this earth who is so brilliant. And I think the best thing I can do, first to start with, is to quote a poem from the book. Oh, very, very important indeed. Please bear in mind that this poem could be 10,000 years before Christ. And it's just incredible that such a poem could be handed down because it was important. It says, in the wilds, there's a dead deer wrapped up 
in bleached reeds. And there's a girl feeling spring as her fair love brings her on. In the woods, there's thicket oak. In the wilds, there's a dead deer, all tangled tight in bleached reeds. And there's a girl, skin like jade. Oh, yes, slowly, yes. My skirt, slowly. Take it slowly. And don't start that dog barking. I mean, can you imagine the impact that this had (laughs) when Ezra Pound published these poems in English around 1920? He collaborated with T.S. Eliot on his poem, The Wasteland, because all these poems, when you put them together, they're very short. They kind of fit together like a collage. But these poems, they really did cause the modern movement. All of these poems are shockingly sparse and they're usually short. And there's four or five basic images and it just goes bang, 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 bang and bang. (laughs) And so if you would read even two or three more of it, you just think this is incredible compared to what the West was doing, how modern these poems are. Yes, here we are. What the human dimension is. This is a concept that I have, you know, I'm trying out. I think it's okay. I don't know if it works. So the human dimension is the concept. And the human dimension is how we live. It means we see the world in a certain way. It's the world we're conscious of. Like all species, we have evolved together with the evolution of our talents. The human dimension, our world, has expanded with us. We actually create it, that we actually create the world we live in. This is the theory. We also make war, and that war is not a talent. War is an abuse of the human dimension and it's a limit to its expansion. It's not human nature to make war. It's the circumstances that have us make war, but it's more to do with the ethos of this terrible, aggressive, warlike, political monotheism. So that is a concept. And I got that concept when I read something in the book of poetry. And Hinton says something I read in this book. I'm going to read out the whole thing, and then I'm going to tell you about it bit by bit. Consciousness, cosmos, and language form a unity. And in the remarkably creative act of reading a Chinese poem, we take part in this unity. We make it, filling absence with presence. And it says, empty mind there at the boundaries of its true wordless form. I just will deal with the first part of it first, which is consciousness, cosmos, and language form a unity. 
and I think I've been talking about that, and I'm going to read, I mean, it's, it's in the poems. You, you can feel it and hear it and know it from the poems. And I will read another one, more or less, at the end of this, which really shows you that, it, that there is a unity between these things. But what, that's the bit that really, really excited me, to link these three words together. And I just think the agent language linking them, linking those two things, is really exciting. And so what really appealed to me about that anyway is that you only know something, an idea, nothing exists until it's named. This is why language is so important. We don't know it till it gets a name. As they sometimes say, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Language and art, they both represent the world. I mean, reading always seems to me the one of the most subversive things you can do in, in the 21st century because it's, it's solitary, it's just you and the page. It's a retreat from everything that's just coming at you all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, but, but, and I, I fully intend to track down a copy of that glorious volume of poems, yeah. but I tried prior to the, today's event, and it's actually quite hard to, to source a copy of in this country. And I wondered how you came across it in the first place. The David Hinton Anthology of Chinese Poetry. Oh, this, yeah, this that book particular here. volume. Yeah. yeah. You just made me think, by the way, of a Chinese saying that I read in my favourite book. It's in five volumes. It's a story of China. It's called The Story of the Stone. And it's a bit magical in the beginning, but then it's a life of real people. This boy has a dream, and he goes through an archway, and the archway says, truth is fiction when the fiction's true. Real is non-real when the non-real's real. And that's what I mean about human beings can represent what is the world by what is not real. And who directed you towards that, towards Chinese poetry? Yeah. Well, I've been a very big fan of Chinese art for a long time. I just love it. And I've got one or two reproductions in my house because, you know, it's just done with ink, so it's got no impasto. And today's technology for reducing things, they're as good as the originals. I go to the Metropolitan Museum looking at the Chinese paintings. It just fills your batteries. It's just so rewarding. Because I was, I was talking to it about, to my friend actually, Fergus, who I think is here. And he bought me this poetry book. Do you know what I want to do? I want to meet him and he teaches at Columbia University and I would like to do a seminar a seminar seminar. yeah that's it yeah it's it's the big the best thing I've ever read in my life I also love the idea that you've you've you just fully absorbed them they're they're so fully a part of you now Mm. but the other thing that struck me listening to your your talk was it makes complete sense that you would have spent such a large portion of your life in fashion and that that would have been what you gravitated towards just because it seems the most one of the most immersive of art forms I mean you you literally inhabit it and you it moves through the world with you in a way that and I know your tastes are so broad-ranging but the literature that you touched on in your keynote it was sort of lived literature it's stories that are a part of the heart and that shape reality and Mm -hmm. and they're very 
all my choices in life are for brain stimulation. My husband is one of them. Um, and um, and um, also my fashion. What happens in, in fashion is that there's sometimes a talented person. And while they're young and they're just first starting, they've got really good ideas. But then it's like you've just used everything up out of the fridge. You can't cook anymore. You've got to keep putting stuff back. And, I, and this is what I put back. And so I've never run out of ideas for what I want to do. You've always read, even as a child. Yes, but I, di- I didn't read anything that you would call literature. It's called Enid Blyton. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then as a, as a teenager, as a, as a young woman, what, how, how did your reading evolve? The thing is that when you read and you start reading stuff that has got ideas in, I started trying to read Dostoevsky. If I read him now, I would get a lot more out of it, obviously. But if you keep on reading, then you become a fit reader. You start to make connections and you start to understand, ah, I know what that means now. It's the same thing that was happening there. One thing illuminates another. And that's what, that's what our brains are like all the time. They store all these little signals so you just become it you have to persevere if you don't understand it never mind just do your best and keep on going oh I'm going to tell you something which me which shows you what a kind person I am I expect but I was coming home from a concert at the Barbican and I was on the tube and these little boys one of them was about 14 this is at 10 o'clock at night one would have been 16 the other one 17 maybe 18 maybe they were a year older than they looked and they were bleeding and they'd had they'd been set upon and beaten up by some kids and I started to talk to them and um, they were really in quite a a state of shock and they were dressed in like little, you know, grey sweatshirt outfits and baseball cap and this kind of thing. And I love young kids of that age, even though they don't know very much, because I think they all feel they've got a life and they're doing something, you know. It's before they have to decide on what career they're going to do and then they find that they get bored or whatever. And I started talking to them and I said to them, if you should read, if you read, it will give you power it'll make you really strong and when you get older you'll have something to hold on to you won't get you'll know who you are you'll know what you're doing it'll give you all this power then I had to get off the train and the little one was sitting next to me and I said be sure you tell them to read and he said what book and (laughs) I just said Oh, anything, anything. But that is the answer. You've got to start to read. You know, I said, oh, darling, I don't have time to talk to you. But it's anything. You must start. (laughs) I I don't suppose there's any chance of you forming a Vivian Westwood book club that we could all join. No, I tried, I tried to have a movement called Intellectuals Unite. I started it in six colleges, and what we're left with there is one or two people are really doing stuff, and the others just didn't bother. And 
the idea was that they would have some sort of reason for meeting and discussing intellectual things. And the idea was that they would also be activists. We could call up them up and say, look, we really need to support the junior doctors and all this stuff, and they would then come and help. I wanted it to grow as big as the hippies, but it certainly didn't. And maybe I didn't have a good enough idea, you know, a flower. That would have been great. But um, you make love, not war, or drugs, but anyway. Um, and and um, so nothing really happened, but that's one reason why I'm here. I invited them to come. I thought, well, try and get on with the activism part of it. And one or two of them are really starting to get the others involved, I hope, in that. I wondered if I could just sort of wrap up by asking you about, about your writing. Uh, yeah, if you'll allow me, that would be absolutely I think we've got, perfect. I think we've got five minutes. And yeah, yeah, that's the, all I need. The, the it's hate, all I need. The hateful, ever-present distractions. It's a, it's a trilogy by Chinua Achebe, and this is the middle one of them. This is about a priest called Ezeulu, and I'm just going to just dip into it without any order. He has a terrible problem, and he tries to solve it. The thing is, it relates to what I was saying about character, that you will always act in character. And at the end of it, Chinua Achebe made a decision, and he did act in character, but he didn't realize that he really did have a different choice if he'd wanted to, because he made the decision according to what he thought his God wanted. He didn't make the decision what he himself wanted to do. What he didn't realize is that this book is like a Greek tragedy. It is incredible. It is full of aphorism and proverbs. And they, these people, these tribal people, this book takes place during the two world wars. And he, he's the priest. It's just full of, of this, this language and this dialogue. And they take a pride in co- their conversation. And it's very interesting. We've been talking about how do... How does the oral tradition get sent down to you? And it's one of and there's one of the answers is in this book because in their heart, their mud dwelling, um, the the father talks to his children about the God that they actually created, and the God he worships worships is a God that the tribes created. So that's interesting because we created our God as well. So it's not just quaint, it's like normal if you want a God. He is looking for the new moon in the beginning of the book. And this is about why he didn't, he didn't make the right choice in the end. Um, and he, he, um, once he, the new moon appears, then he can set the dates for the festivals and the planting and everything. So it's very important that he's make, he knows when it comes out. But then he asks himself, you know, where is his power? You know, he names the days of the festivals and the, and the planting, but he doesn't know where his power comes from. And he said, you wouldn't dare 
um, not do what the God sends, says. So where is my power? And then as soon as he said that, he got really angry and he said, take away that word dare, as if it had been his enemy that spoke to him. Woman has not yet been born who will bear the son that dare say that I dare not. I mean, anyway, he goes into it. And then it said, but he wasn't really satisfied with that. And his mind crept back to the brink of knowing. That's the only hint that Chinua Achebe gives to you. But the brink of knowing was that the God and he himself were the same. And that's why he didn't make the right decision in the end. He thought he had two choices. In the Raglan book about the myths, myths, we know now how God created the world because you can work it out for yourself. When you transpose that microcosm onto the macrocosm, then you know that a God big enough to make the world lives in the sky. His eyes are in, in the sun and the moon. He lives in the sky and he's everywhere. He's a God who's big enough to make the whole world because you've just taken this symbolic thing and projected it onto the other thing. If God created the world, who created God. Little children ask you that, don't they? And this is what I think is so important, that some of the gods shouted their own name. And I told you that nothing happens until it's named. And I was saying, you know, that thinking and naming things, it's talking, it's the same thing. Some of the gods chopped off their own head and threw that as far as they could. And I'm very interested, the Bible was written in Greek first. The word for word in Greek is logos. And logos doesn't only mean word, it means logic and it means reason. And so this is what I'm saying about language. It's the prime mover, I think, for who is homo sapiens, who are we? Probably should call ourselves homo loquax. But it interested me that that sort of connected all together. There's just no way of of tying up everything you've said because it's it's so extraordinarily sweeping and and all-encompassing and you've given us tantalising glimpses of terrain that you would have gone Can I just say why I mentioned that? Because it is that every book you read, it's connected. It will be connected with this perspective. You'll find something in there that throws light on what you're reading. It will become more significant, I do believe, Yeah. Our year-round events programme brings you some of the most interesting artists and speakers from around the world. To hear future podcasts or delve into our archive, listen and subscribe on iTunes or soundcloud.com forward slash Southbank Centre.